Well, tonight, I'd like to go back as we were last week to Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. And there are some passages where you get up to speak and you're studying it the week heading into it. And you're going, you know, this is really going to take some explaining. You know, here's where all my seminary training pays off, right? And, you know, it's time to, you know, we're going to dissect this and, you know, really take it apart and explain it. And then there's other passages that you look at and you go, well, there it is. It's kind of simple, pretty direct, pretty straightforward. This is one of those. So we're just going to read it tonight and go home. Okay? Not really. There's a lot here that we want to unpack. Okay, we're going to be tonight in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Because if you remember last week, we were in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we were commanded as believers, as members of a local church body, to be imitators of God by being loving and forgiving people, just as our Heavenly Father in His Son Jesus Christ has loved and forgiven us. Tonight, we get into a new paragraph here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, where Paul talks to the Ephesian church about a few very, very specific areas on this is how you are to live your life, and this is how you are not to live your life. Again, it's very straightforward, but there is very profound truth, especially for a body of believers that lives in a culture such as ours. And if you haven't read ahead yet, I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we get into this passage. As we start our time tonight, I'd actually like to go back and read starting in chapter 4, verse 32. Because remember, again, when Paul wrote this, he didn't write chapter and verse divisions into this. He was simply writing a letter. So the thought here that carries into our passage tonight actually begins in verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. So let's start there, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Then chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God by being loving and forgiving. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then we get into our passage tonight, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. As I said a couple minutes ago, there are these passages, especially in the New Testament, where it seems to just be very direct. We can stand up and read Paul's words and say, there it is. Don't let these things, X, Y, Z, be named. Instead, do this. All right, everybody, let's pray and let's go home. But I think it would serve us well to sit here tonight for a few minutes and unpack a lot of this and talk about the ramifications of it for us as Christians, especially Christians who live in a culture like we live in today. 
And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to break this down into three main points, this passage. First, we will look at what is not proper for those who name the name of Christ. Then we will look at what Paul says is proper. This is not proper. Here's what you don't do. Here's what you put in its place. And then we'll look at a very sobering warning to close our time tonight. So let's get into the first verse, or verse 3, and look at what Paul says is not proper. He says again in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Then he continues into verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. What Paul does here in verse 3, in the beginning of verse 4, is he gives us a series of things originally to the church at Ephesus, but to us today as believers, that we are to be avoiding. Even to the point where he says, and we'll talk about this in a minute, they must not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. And what I want to do here is just work through this list. And let's take a hard look at our lives tonight as believers. I'm assuming that most of us, as we gather here tonight, would claim the name of Christ And the question is, is it valid based on what is here in this passage and the warning that follows? So the first thing in Paul's list here, we're going to take the first two kind of as one. Sexual immorality and impurity. Sexual immorality and impurity. Now, not necessarily a comfortable subject tonight, but one that is immensely relevant, I think, for us. Especially if you look at what is going on around us. In our culture, we are living in the middle of a new sexual revolution. Are we not? Even things, things that even 10 years ago would have been deemed unmentionable are now flouted in your face anytime you poke your nose outside your front door. It was no different for the church at Ephesus. Many of you who are familiar with the history of the New Testament church and the background of this letter will remember that the city of Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, was headquarters to the temple and worship of Diana, the Greek goddess of love. I had the opportunity a few years ago to visit the ruins of the temple of Diana with my buddy Oliver back there. It was pretty spectacular. It was really cool to see. But there was also the knowledge there of the things that had happened on the very ground on which you stood. Without going into a lot of detail for time's sake tonight, famously the temple of Diana was well known for the temple prostitutes that were there. And to go and engage in sexual relations with a prostitute of Diana was to honor her and was an act of worship. This was the culture that the Ephesian believers had grown up in. This is what they were steeped in. This is what they were saved out of. This is what they used to be. And now, within the church of Christ, as a part of body of Christ, they are called to a new sexual ethic. And that is why the importance is here in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Paul uses two terms here. Sexual immorality and all impurity. Let's look at that first term first. Okay, The word translated sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia. I don't need to tell you what word we get in our society from that. It is a word that refers to all sexual sin. 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated as fornication. What it points to is sexual activity outside of marriage. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used to refer to incest, to promiscuity, to sexual relations with a prostitute, as well as to sexual relations in general, illicitly. It's a broad term that points to the widest category of sexual sin and can be used with reference to a wide variety of sexual practices. The next term, translated impurity, is a term that refers to anything that is specifically sexually unclean or filthy. So when we take these two terms together, what Paul is describing here, the type of behavior that he is describing, this is referring to adultery, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality, pornography, which existed at that point in time in that world, lustful thoughts, it covers either heterosexual or homosexual sexual activity outside of marriage, as well as, for us today and for them back then, it would cover any sort of revolution spurred on by a transgender movement, which is tied to a sexual revolution. These two are linked together as a tandem. And when they are used like this, when Paul talks about sexual immorality, when he talks about impurity, it is any sort of sexual activity between two people who are not married, a man and a woman who are not married in the way that the Bible defines marriage as a commitment between one man and one woman for life until death do us part. Any activity outside of that is what Paul has in mind here. A fantastic book that I have read, would highly recommend by Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. Here's what he writes when he comments on this. I really liked his comments, so I'm going to read them tonight. He said, The simplest way to understand Paul's intent here is to think about the things that would make you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or your wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, you would not be upset. If someone gave a casual side hug to your husband, it probably wouldn't bother you. A kiss on the cheek or even a peck on the lips in some cultures might be appropriate. But if you found out another person had sex with your wife or saw her naked or touched certain parts of her body, you would be furious. If you found out another person made out with your husband or talked about sexual activities or made certain gestures, you would be heartbroken. Why? Because these are all activities that are appropriate for a married couple, but are inappropriate when practiced outside of the lawful relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. These are the types of things that Paul has in view here when he says sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among you. You see, he's writing to those that he refers to as saints. The New Testament word for saints literally means holy ones. Those who are holy ought to have nothing to do with that which is unholy. These sins, these two here, and what Paul goes on to list, are completely contrary to what it means to be a Christian. Someone who names the name of Christ and yet engages in these sins as a regular part of their lifestyle does not know Christ. 
Now we know, and I've mentioned already, that we live in the midst of a world that is really undergoing a radical sexual revolution. Increasingly, more and more, the church of Christ, those who will be faithful to Scripture, are going to be seen as out of step and out of date. My fear here is, and I think the greatest fear, is not necessarily that the true church of Jesus Christ will capitulate, but that we become so inundated with a society that is crazy about sex in every way, shape, or form and is looking to increasingly more and more throw off the boundaries in the sense that anything goes, that we become as Christians desensitized to it. That we, as a body of Christ, are so inundated with it and saturated with it in the culture that we live in day after day after day that we just get used to it. And all of a sudden, things that would have been unacceptable to us before, we won't notice anymore. And we become more and more like the world around us. Is sexual immorality becoming a blind spot for us as individual Christians and as a church? One of the things that I was thinking about this week as I was preparing, I think there's a parallel here from the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel came into the promised land, into Canaan, began driving out the Canaanites... One of the things that is repeatedly noted that they failed to do was to remove what was known as the high places. These places of pagan worship called high places because most often they were on a hill or a ridge where they would build altars, monuments to their pagan gods. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you see the common theme repeated that the high places were never ever removed by Israel. For example... King Asa in 1 Kings chapter 15, a good king, is noted in the Old Testament as being a godly man and a good king. Hey, but one of the notes on his reign in 1 Kings chapter 15 is he did all these things that were good, but he did not remove the high places. King Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings chapter 22, same story, a godly legacy. He did this and it was good. He did this and it was good. He did this and it was good. But the high places were not taken away and even during his reign, the people still sacrificed on the high places. What these high places became when they were not removed, when any last vestige of pagan worship was not removed from the nation of Israel, they became symbols of Israel's compromise. And eventually they led to their downfall. Because as long as those high places were there, there was still a pagan presence that was calling to the nation of Israel to call them away from worship of the one true God. And eventually, it didn't happen overnight, but they capitulated and they fell. You see, these high places were so entrenched in the culture, they seemed so normal, that even the good kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat did not think to remove them or they couldn't muster the courage to do so, to act on their convictions because it was just the way that things were. And so the question here tonight is have we allowed the world to dictate to us as a church what is acceptable in this area rather than the word of God? In our thoughts, in our actions, in what we choose to be entertained by, so on and so forth. 
Scripture is clear that we as Christians are to abstain from all forms of sexual sin. I would point us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, that this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. That's the same word, by the way, that's used here in Ephesians chapter 5. As Christians, we're members of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 is very clear about that. Our bodies belong to God and not us. We no longer live for self-gratification, but rather for God's glory. And to engage, to use our members for sexual sin is not to bring God glory, but is to seek self-gratification. And when we engage in any form of sexual sin, whether that's through the eyes, in our thoughts, or through a physical act... It is as if Christ himself was engaging in that sin since we are members of his body. When we put our bodies, our eyes, our thoughts where they do not belong, we're putting the Lord Jesus where he does not belong. If we are joined to Christ, then we must use our physical bodies in a way that is honoring to him. Paul goes on and writes, he says, it must not even be named Hey, this is to be something that if you name the name of Christ as an individual and as a local church body, specifically here, we must be on guard against this, against sexual immorality, against impurity. So what does this mean for our dating relationships? The things that we laugh about, the way that we dress, our entertainment as Christians living in a culture like this. The phrase not even be named does not allow for participating in, reveling in, or being amused by sexual sin in any form. Do we, for example, seek exposure to sexual immorality and temptation? Call it relaxation. Do we stare at sensuality that aims to amuse and arouse and weaken our conscience and deaden our sense of spiritual things? Remember, though, our goal is much more lofty than simply avoiding scandalous sin or perverted outward behavior. Our ultimate goal is to glorify God in holiness by walking in good works. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? It says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Not just avoidance of bad behavior, and we want to replace it with works that glorify our Heavenly Father. Again, Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, wrote this. He said, it's easily to be overly dogmatic when talking about matters the Bible doesn't directly address, like movies and music or dating and dress. Talking about this specific area, he says, we have to allow that good Christians will make different choices for themselves. Don't minimize the reality of Christian liberty and the role of the conscience. But if you are in Christ, please consider whether your conscience is functioning as well as it ought. The world around us is no friend to us in our fight for sexual purity. We daily inhale sexual air, are bombarded with sexual images, and are made to believe that sexuality defines who we are. Sex sells, and even Christians who wait until marriage and confess their struggles to accountability partners are adept at buying the world's sexual wares through the internet 
at the ticket counter, in the mall, and by a thousand other means. Sexual immorality is everywhere to see, and too few of us with the mind of Christ are bothering to close our eyes. Before we move on to our next point, just to wrap up this, and say, be very careful as Christians. This is specifically named here for a reason. And the Ephesians lived in a world where they were inundated and bombarded with this. Anytime they walked down the street to the market, it was everywhere, just like it is with us, it seems. Be very careful. Let he who thinks he stands take heed, right? Lest he fall. And oftentimes that fall into sexual sin, like the kind of Paul is talking about here, doesn't happen overnight. It happens little by little. Because the high places maybe still exist in our own hearts. So I would encourage us tonight, if this is something that we are going to take seriously, okay, considering where we live and the world that we live in, maybe we ought to do a little self-introspection tonight to see if there is an aspect of sexual immorality and impurity that is named among us or still indwells our hearts. Next thing that Paul writes about, he says, covetousness must not be named among you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way in his book, Darkness and Light. He said, covetous means, of course, avarice, love of money. Love of money is money. Love of money partly for itself and partly because of what it can do for us. The things that we can buy with money, the things that we can procure with money, the things that we can do if we have money. In fact, the love of all that money can do and achieve. That is what Paul is condemning under the word covetousness. It's a very broad term, but there's very little that escapes us or escapes the term here. Paul says, covetousness must not even be named among you. The love of money can make us as human beings, even as those who name the name of Christ, do crazy things, do hateful things, do ungodly things. And that's why we are commanded to keep ourselves free from the love of money. Jesus himself stated that we cannot serve both God and money in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. This is why if we skip down to Ephesians 5, 5, that's why Paul says the one who is covetous is an idolater. Why? Because you can't serve God and money at the same time. And for the ones who decide, well, I'm going to serve money, now they've put something in the place of the God that they should be serving and put something over him. Thus, they are an idolater. I think, though, when talking about covetousness here, that immorality and impurity may still be in view here as well when Paul talks about covetousness. See, there's forms of covetousness in the realm of sex. And so I think this also has an application to ravenous self-assertion in matters of sex at the expense of others. Spouses, children, partners, etc. The point here is the covetous person is, like we will see in verse 5, an idolater. Whether they are serving money or whether sex is still in view here. You are serving something in place of God. You are bowing at the altar that you shouldn't be bowing at instead of bowing at the feet of your creator. When the pursuit of the creation becomes more important to us than the creator, we have become idolatrous in that we are loving other things more than we are loving our God.
So Paul says, let sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints, holy ones. Verse 4 says, he continues his list, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Three final terms to round out his list. And again, all of them very pertinent and for a very specific reason. He moves on now to specific sins of the tongue. What this really is, is an expansion of what he mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29, where he said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So this no corrupting talk now is expanded on in chapter 5 in verse 4, where he talks about filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Filthiness, the word here, points to what is shameful and disgraceful. We might call it indecent or vulgar language. Many of your versions might translate this as obscenity. This is the person who speaks and has no regard for proper standards, and thus their speech is consistently disrespectful and vulgar. Think of someone who just enjoys speaking for shock value, for lack of a better term, who will use foul language simply for the purpose of the effect that it has on other people. That's filthiness. Paul says, don't let it be named. Don't let language like this come out of your mouths under any circumstance. The next term he goes to is foolish talk. The word that is translated as foolish here is the Greek moros. The word that we get moron from. It's not a flattering term. Foolish talk. This is stupid talk. Speech that characterizes someone who is intellectually deficient. But really the concern here is with morals rather than an IQ level. What this term foolish talk points at, it points at language that makes light of high standards of behavior or tearing down what is high or praiseworthy because it could never attain to it. So let's just tear it down. It's low obscenity. It's talk that would come from a drunkard or someone with what we would call a potty mouth. Hey, when I was thinking about it this week, I may be the only one who's ever had this experience, but I can remember times in my life and making a full confession tonight that I've watched things on TV or watched movies and I've just walked away with the impression, you know, it was supposed to be funny, but you walk away from it going, it wasn't funny. I just feel dumber for having watched that. I know I'm probably the only one who's ever had that experience, but I've had it more than once. You just feel like you need to go and take a shower and just forget about it. Like, I wish I just wouldn't have exposed myself to that. That's the kind of thing that Paul has in view here. A low obscenity, just a, a degrading, debased speech. He talks about then crude joking. This here points to innuendo, double entendre. Okay, speech that is easily turned into being something that it's not, usually of a sexual nature. This type of speech is the product of someone with a dirty mind that can turn anything into a sexual reference. 
usually with the intent of being funny. God's word says it's not. It's not appropriate for saints. This sinful speech, Paul writes, is out of place. But again, this is not primarily because of the speech itself. Granted, the words are offensive and foul, but what does Jesus tell us? Our speech is important because of what our speech shows. You see, speech of this nature, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, this type of speech is out of place because it shows an evil heart. Like Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, Matthew chapter 12, the mouth speaks. So if this is something that characterizes your speech, if this is something that you find yourself going to, like if filthiness, obscenity, crude joking, if that's like your go-to at parties, that's showing something in your heart. That's showing that there is filthiness within and that filthiness is coming out. That's concerning. That's the reason that Paul goes on to write later the warning that we will look at. But before we get to that, let's look at what is proper. Now that we've been forced to think, do some self-evaluation, maybe some painful self-evaluation, what's the flip side? What's the good? Verse 4, the second part. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. The focus here, again, is on an inward attitude that expresses itself outwardly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says the will of God is that you abstain from fornication. Now he says the will of God is that you give thanks to him in all situations. Take one, set it aside, and replace it with a heart of thanksgiving. How does this fit? Why would Paul juxtapose these two things? You know, why would he go from our sexual conduct and the speech of our mouths, and why does he say replace it with specifically thanksgiving? This is a proper attitude, we see, for the children of light because its attention is on God, his grace, and his desires rather than gratifying our own. This is the reversal of the sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions that have been described up to this point. I like the way that John MacArthur put it in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, instead of being involved in immorality or filthy speaking, the believer's mouth should be involved in the giving of thanks. Thanksgiving is an expression of unselfishness. The selfish and unloving person does not think to give thanks because he thinks he deserves whatever good thing he receives. The unselfish and loving person, on the other hand, focuses his life and his concern on the needs of others. Whatever good thing he receives from God or from other people, he counts as undeserved and gracious. He's always thankful because his spirit is one of loving and giving. Instead of using others, he serves them. Instead of trying to turn the innocent into the immoral, he seeks to change the immoral into what is righteous and holy. He's thankful because the holy life is the satisfying life and people see love for God in the thankful person. 
So it is absolutely appropriate that after giving us this list where Paul says these are not appropriate for saints, let this not even be named among you, that he reverses course, shows us the flip side and says, in its place, let there be thanksgiving. As saints, as holy ones redeemed by Christ, we ought to be known as people who are thankful. When people converse with us, interact with us in our day-to-day lives, they ought to leave our presence going, that is a grateful person. And not just gratitude for the sake of being grateful, but gratitude for what we have in Christ. Gratitude that points other people to the goodness of God and the glory of the gospel. So Paul says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. And then he goes on, our third point tonight, verses five and six, where we will wrap up his warning, which we would do well to heed. He says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The warning here, sexual sin and greed or covetousness are not fitting for God's people and those who commit such sins, point blank, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They have no part in Christ. They do not know the gospel. Now this is not speaking to those who are saved, who know Christ, who may stumble and fall into sin for a period of time and eventually repent. What Paul is talking about here, the person that he has in view here, is the type of person whose life is characterized by these sins, who does these things as a habit, who is known as this type of person, and they do not care. This person will not inherit the kingdom of God. The warning is strengthened in verse 6, where he says, Not just that they have no part in the kingdom of God, but the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. They're excluded from the kingdom and they are subject to God's wrath. Those who would rather serve at the altar of sex and filthiness and everything else that this world has to offer have no part in the kingdom of God because they show by their actions that their heart has never been regenerated. That there is no spiritual life within them. Those who are characterized by these sins. This would contradict the truth of scripture. For example, in Romans chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 John, regarding the characteristics of a true believer. You see, the life that is described in the sins that Paul lists in the first part of chapter 5 is a life that testifies to an unredeemed sinful nature. The habitually sinful person proves that he does not have a godly nature. I want to flip over to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's plain, it's evident. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now again, Paul is not looking, nor are we tonight, to cause doubt 
in the hearts of true believers who struggle with sin. But the word there, the key word there is struggle, right? A true believer, a true follower of Christ will never be happy in these sins that we've listed here tonight. The unregenerate, the unredeemed can live like this and think nothing of it. This is the person that Paul has in view here. Christians are instructed by the Holy Spirit and the new nature to forsake sin and to seek righteousness. The person whose basic life pattern does not reflect that orientation cannot claim God as his father or the kingdom as his inheritance. A stern warning, but one that we would do well to heed tonight. Even those of us who are here at Lakeside Community Chapel week in and week out. As we wrap up our time tonight, we'd ask the question, are you vigilant against sexual sin and temptation in your life? Do your thoughts, your eyes, your attitudes, your actions reflect that of a saint, of a holy one? Or have you compromised in this area by listening to a world that will tell you that what's here in this book is outdated, is out of step. They may even result in persecution down the line. Again, when we're talking about sexual sin and temptation, very rarely is it that someone who professes Christ falls into this sin like that all of a sudden. My life was completely holy and free from this, and all of a sudden the next day I found myself here. No, generally it's a gradual slide. Something in your life is accepted and tolerated, and then something else is added to that. And then, well, that's not that bad, or I've already gone this far. And all of a sudden you look back and you don't even recognize the person that you used to be. Do you have a covetous heart? It doesn't have to apply just to money. It's what we generally think of when it comes to covetousness, but it could be anything that this world has to offer. Sex, as we've talked about, money, goods, power, prestige, advancement in a career. Is there anything in our heart that we desire more than our creator? Paul says if that's the consistent pattern of your life, you know nothing of the gospel. Let it not be named. Does your speech reflect the holiness of God? How are you known, for example, outside of the walls of Lakeside Community Chapel as far as your speech is concerned? Is it obscene? Is it low? Is it crude? Is it sexual in nature? Hey, but we don't just want to avoid these things. Are we known as Christians as those who build others up in our speech? When other people leave your presence, are they encouraged by the conversation that you had to love Jesus more and to be more like him? Are you a thankful person in all circumstances of life? Again, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Those of you who are here who would name the name of Christ, I would encourage you to walk away from this tonight doing some self-examination in these specific areas. But for those here who may not know Christ, if you're an unbeliever, understand that right now this warning in chapter 5 verse 6 applies to you. You stand here or sit here tonight 
hearing my voice as the object of God's wrath, his righteous wrath against your sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As an unredeemed sinner, your life is not pleasing to God and you cannot do anything in your own power to be pleasing enough to him to avert this righteous wrath, this penalty due for your sins, first of all, against him. But he has provided a way of redemption, a way of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And if tonight you will but trust in Jesus, if you will believe that he died in your place, the Bible says if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, you believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can know forgiveness for the sins. If Ephesians chapter five describes you, you can have forgiveness of those sins or any of the other sins that you have committed in your life. It is all free if you will but turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And I'll make the same plea, extend the same invitation that my friend Jack did from this pulpit this morning. If you do not know Christ, there's nothing that I would like for you to do more tonight than when we close the service here to come up and talk to me. Because I would love nothing more than to show you how you can know the same forgiveness and redemption in Christ that I know and be forgiven of your sins and walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time tonight. Father, thank you for your word, which shows us how to live. Father, and shows us how not to live. I pray, Father, that you would take the things that we've talked about tonight in your love and wisdom for everyone here and apply it to our hearts in the way that you see fit for each one of us, Father. I pray for your people here that you would watch over us as we go our separate ways this week. Father, that you would keep us safe. Father, that you would protect our hearts from the evil without and the evil that still lives within us in our flesh. Father, I pray that you'd bring us back safely next week to worship you together as a family. And I pray for anyone here who does not know Christ. Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes tonight to their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. Father, and that you would bring them and grant them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus and follow him and trust him for forgiveness of their sins tonight. We trust all these things to you, Father, and we love you, and we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.